Thanksgiving will, of course, be different this year for those of us who are used to gathering together on Thanksgiving Day for a large meal, maybe a somewhat rowdy family gathering crowded around a table with relatives from near and far. This Thanksgiving will be very different. At least it should be if we are following the guidance of public health officials about how we can help to slow the spread of the virus. Whereas larger community gatherings and public interactions were the most likely place for the virus to spread in its earlier wave, this time around it appears that gatherings of close family and friends, especially in smaller indoor spaces, are places where the virus is gaining its foothold and taking advantage. So this Thanksgiving will likely look different in terms of the gathering aspect, first of all. But when we think about that, we are immediately confronted with these kinds of questions as well. What does that mean for the food, for the traditional meal? If you're not gathering with family, do you still cook a turkey if there are only two of you? Do you lay out a spread of different favorite dishes if you're the only one at the table? Do you get out the special tablecloth and the good china if there are no guests? What will you eat at Thanksgiving this time around? Will you prepare a feast if there is only one or two or three at the table? The early afternoon NPR show Here and Now was on the radio as I drove home for lunch the other day. My trip only takes a few minutes, so I didn't listen to very much of the program, but I gathered that the host was interviewing some kind of food expert who was talking brightly about alternatives for Thanksgiving dinner. <clears throat> I looked it up later and it turns out the segment was titled Suggestions for a Smaller but Still Festive Thanksgiving from Chef Kathy Gunst. Chef Gunst had this to say, there's no one right way to celebrate this very unusual holiday in this very difficult year. The key is to find something that feels special to you and your family, creativity, inventiveness, thinking outside the box. I plan on creating a highly scaled down Thanksgiving, she continued. I love cooking and eating the foods of this holiday from roasting a turkey and mashing potatoes to making creamed spinach and my annual batch of cranberry sauce. Even though there will be traditional foods on my table, it won't look like a normal Thanksgiving. I will not make multiple types of potatoes or two types of stuffing or bake four desserts. My table this year will be very small and very simple. And then she offered two examples of her small and simple approach to Thanksgiving dinner this year. Kale, mushroom, onion, and sharp cheddar cheese savory bread pudding, and roasted winter squash with maple cider glaze. I switched off the radio. Not because I'm against those dishes, they actually sound pretty good to me, but I switched off the radio because I am not yearning for suggestions about how to think outside the box right now. And I'm already up to my ears in opportunity for creativity. No, what I am yearning for as I think about Thanksgiving is what I cannot have. A taste or a view of the familiar, of the traditional, of the, dare I say, normal. I am wishing for something, but I expect that it's not to be. This time the table will not be what it has been before, 
And so the questions you and I are left to ponder are not just the questions of who will or won't be around the table or what will or won't be on the table this year, but other bigger and deeper questions, questions like these. Will we still feast on gratitude or will we mostly chew on grief? Will we lay a table of expectation or will we only set a place for ourselves to sit alongside the disappointment that keeps us company these days? Will Thanksgiving, even as it is different or scaled back, somehow still symbolize the gathering of loved ones, even if that gathering is not in person or is unable to meet our yearned for intimacy? Or will the day and all its unmet expectations just intensify the feelings of isolation that are so prevalent and so widespread these days? For some among us, the holidays, beginning with Thanksgiving, are always a time of isolation and separation. Not everyone looks forward to gatherings of family. Not everyone has opportunity to gather. But this year, such thoughts, such challenges are more commonly, more universally considered and felt. We are finally more in the same situation than we have been before. The scripture for this morning from Ezekiel's prophecies includes the language of feeding, if not feasting. God is portrayed as the true shepherd, seeking out the shepherd's flock, gathering those who are scattered, feeding them, quote, on the mountains, by the watercourses, and in all inhabited parts of Israel, feeding them with good pasture, with rich pasture. It sounds abundant. It sounds generous. The shepherd leads the sheep to places where they will be satisfied, where they will feast and have their fill. But then the text turns a bit. The shepherd recognizes that not all is well, not all is equal and fair for all the flock. There are some sheep that need extra attention and care, some that need more than just the promise of good pasture. I will seek the lost, says God the shepherd, and I will bring back the strayed, and I will bind up the injured, and I will strengthen the weak. It sounds right to us, bringing along the left behind. But then the statement continues, but the fat and the strong I will destroy. I will feed them with justice. I will seek the lost and I will bring back the strayed and I will bind up the injured and I will strengthen the weak, but the fat and the strong I will destroy. I will feed them with justice. Who is the them who gets fed with justice? The lost, the strayed, the injured, the weak, and the fat and the strong? And what does that even mean? What does it mean to be fed with justice. Does justice taste different for those who occupy different places in the system, in the society? Is justice sweet for the weak and bitter for the strong? Are the lost, the injured, and so forth, the ones that God, the shepherd, considers to be the regular sheep, 
while the fat and the strong are either, quote, predatory shepherds devouring the sheep or else greedy sheep taking all the good grass and water for themselves and leaving scarcely anything fit to eat or drink for the rest of the flock, as Hebrew Bible translator Robert Alter puts it in his interpretation notes for this passage. Does feeding with justice save some and destroy others? Or is it nourishment for some and punishment for others? Or is it simply a rebalancing, a restoring of the well-being of the whole flock? Don't assume that the answers to these questions are obvious because they are not. It's not just a matter of taking from some and giving to others, of rewarding some and punishing others. There's something bigger being suggested, something more visionary that Ezekiel is offering. Maybe it's best to start with the word justice as it appears in the passage and in particular in that verse that says, I will feed them with justice. The word translated in this verse as justice in the New Revised Standard Version and in most other translations, although offered as the word judgment in the King James Version, is the Hebrew word mishpat, a word used extensively in the Hebrew scriptures. Mishpat is an interesting word, an interesting concept. It has to do with justice, with laws that promote justice, with legal processes and cases and judgments, rights and privileges. In modern Hebrew, it is the word for law. But in the ancient Hebrew language and in the ancient Hebrew scriptures, It has to do not just with basic civil law, but with ethical obligations to help the needy, with fair and right interpersonal behaviors, and with a justly ordered society. Says one source, Mishpat, a justly ordered society, is one of the foundational values of Judaism. The prophets railed against the absence of mishpat in the days of kings who abused their power. This person goes on to say that mishpat, justice, along with loving kindness and righteousness in the earth, is one of the three key values through which we imitate God. I will seek the lost and I will bring back the strayed and I will bind up the injured and I will strengthen the weak, but the fat and the strong I will destroy. I will feed them with justice. How are we feeding the world with justice? How are we, whether sheep ourselves or perhaps apprentice shepherds, feeding God's flock with justice? What are we doing? What are we not doing? In a recent Christian Century editorial, Peter Marty talks about opting out and how he, a person of privilege or advantage, one of the fat sheep perhaps, or one of the strong sheep, has traveled through life with the option to opt out always before him. He writes, decades ago as a young adult, I first recognized my ability to seriously opt out. Through the simple purchase of evacuation insurance, which was quite affordable at that time, I was essentially able to opt out of the rural healthcare system in Africa during my year and a half stay. 
Since then, of course, I've noticed thousands of ways that people like me and unlike me are able to opt out of unwelcome circumstances without any dire consequences. He goes on to say that if you own a car, you can opt out of public transportation. If you enjoy a certain level of financial resources, you can opt out of the local public school system, choosing instead a private elite education. Or when you are flying, if you have enough money, you can opt out of sitting in coach and choose first class instead. If you are arrested and you are a person of advantage or privilege, he notes, you can opt out of sitting in a jail cell because you have the money for bail or a better lawyer. Or even better, you might opt out of the arrest altogether by leveraging connections you might have with local officials. And he says, many of us have opted out of conversations about racism or about developing an elemental awareness of the cruel consequences of systemic injustice. I would add that in these COVID times that if you are advantaged, you can opt out of many of the difficult economic stresses and decisions that go with trying to balance work commitments and childcare needs during a time of in-person work and online education, or trying to choose between health and work. Advantage, privilege of all sorts lets you opt out. He contrasts that with the witness of Jesus, quote, despite numerous opportunities to opt out of the way of suffering, despite the consistent efforts of his disciples to try to talk him out of such an end, he stays the course. His decision to opt in to his greater calling of love remains both instructive and saving. Marty concludes, the privilege that so many of us enjoy of being able to opt out of less than desirable circumstances should induce neither pride nor guilt. Our greater responsibility is to identify and choose opportunities to opt in, where we can come to the table and share in the work of strengthening the common good. Listen to that last statement again. Our greater responsibility is to identify and choose opportunities to opt in, where we can come to the table and share in the work of strengthening the common good. I will seek the lost and I will bring back the strayed and I will bind up the injured and I will strengthen the weak, but the fat and the strong I will destroy. I will feed them with justice. Feeding others with justice only happens when the privileged, the fat and the strong, opt in to responsibility and sharing and transformative action and working for the common good. Because until and unless that happens, then the fat and the strong are deluding themselves. They think that through their self-interest, they are making themselves safe and comfortable and beyond reach. But what they, what we are really doing is turning away from a God who feeds all the sheep, not just with green pastures, but with fairness and hope and balance and inclusion 
and what is ethically right and necessary for a justly ordered society. So what are you going to do? Like the most selfish sheep in the scripture, will you trample the pasture and foul the water? Push the weak with your flank and your shoulder, scatter the flock far and wide, or set a table and sit at a table where mishpat is the main course on the menu. I read another article in the Century this week about how some black churches are tackling food insecurity. Heber Brown III, a Baltimore pastor who has founded a food security network, is seeking to bring together black churches and black farmers to create a food system that builds on the strengths of the black community to improve the health and well-being of African Americans. What he's doing sounds like feeding the flock with justice because it's not a food charity, but instead it's the work of food sustainability and systemic reorganization, the building of a community-led food system. Brown talks about how the light bulb went on for him. A turning point was when I went to the Civil Rights Museum in Birmingham. I saw something I had never learned in grade school. During the Montgomery bus boycott, the African-American community did not just stop riding the buses, They created their own transportation system. Churches in the community bought buses. They coupled that with local folks who were ferrying people around on their own, and they created their own system. He he describes the food security initiative in his local community that started with church gardens and then moved to mini farmers markets hosted inside churches. At first, produce was given away, and then a donation system was established, and then a pay system was put in place because they recognized that it was a ministry stream that could actually pay for itself and build more what he calls sustainability muscles. He writes, once we realized that we could beat the local market's prices, we felt better about it. We told people, you're going to spend your money somewhere. We feel like not only is our product better, but we can introduce you to the person who grew it. You can be supporting a just cause, buying from a black farmer on purpose. Our farmers tell us, he said, that they make more money in two hours at the church than they do in six hours downtown. We work hard to do relationship building and it really has a community feel. At the end of the interview, the last question posed to Heber Brown was this, what's your favorite food? He answered, macaroni and cheese. That's a funny answer for a church farm guy, the interviewer noted. Brown answered, we put soul in it. I like that. We put soul in it. To tend the flock with justice, we have to put soul in it, our soul, the soul of compassion and change, the soul of nourishment, the soul of hope, 
justice should taste good for everyone. Amen. Please join me now in some moments of silent prayer and reflection.